our family, our family comes from a long line of folks who have served in the military. I brought a couple family pieces up here actually today. Um, the sword that's up here was found on our Mallory farm, and we don't know who it, like which war it dates to, but, um, but it was found, uh, it was probably one of our relatives that had it. Um, those mittens are buffalo mittens, and they were worn along with a great big buffalo coat when one of my relatives registered for the Civil War. I from the understand that he wore it when he went to go register at Fort Snelling to sign up to be a part of that conflict. Um, the helmet was worn in combat by my grandfather on my mom's side in World War One. And when I think about my kids, I think about how they have great-grandfathers who served in World War One and World War Two. They have grandfathers who served in Korea and in Vietnam. And as I was thinking about today and I was thinking about just the experience of our own family and our family and our, our ancestors, what Jesus said um, just rings true. He said that there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars until the end of the age. There will be wars, there will be rumors of wars until the end of the age. And that certainly has proven true. One of the things we talked about last week is how every generation is going to have to apply what it means to be strong and courageous in their, own, in their own generation. We're going to have to learn what that means. Because there will always be wars. There will always be rumors of wars. And we're taking and devoting um, multiple weeks here to pressing into how do we do that in a God-honoring way? That's the series we kicked off on the anniversary of September 11th, the 15th anniversary. We kicked off the series that we're in now. It's going to continue for a couple weeks called Holy War where we try, it, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who believe the Bible is his word, we're going to try to open up the scriptures and say, God, what does strong and courageous look like? What does God honoring look like in the world that we live in? And just last night in Minnesota, there was a reminder of this. We don't have all the details, but something happened up in St. Cloud is what we do know. Someone, from what the sound of it, went into the mall, dressed up like a security officer, holding a knife, and started stabbing folks. And the person was stopped using lethal force. Well, I mean, we got relatives all over the place up there. That's where my dad's people are from, the St. Cloud area, Sock Rapids, Papa Creek. We got friends that come and visit here from St. Cloud. They come visit our, our service. The things that we're talking about here, this is not theory that we can just discuss as little theological musings, or however you pronounce that word, right? This is real stuff. If it was you, and you were in a mall, and somebody started shooting, what does the God-honoring response look like to that? Is it to get out of harm's way, or is it to run towards? And if you're running towards, is it a self-sacrificial, try to put yourself between someone and the violent person, or is it to try to stop? What, what does God honoring look like? Whether it's in that individual situation, whether it's as a nation, what does God honoring look like? We're going to do the best we can with the limited time we have to press into that over the next several weeks. Now, our jumping off point has been the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles, you can start to turn there. That's where we're going to spend um, most of our time there. We're going to spend our time in Joshua and, uh, and in, in the book of Romans today. But Joshua's our jumping off point. 
for those of you not familiar with the Bible, um, first of all, we'd love to give you one free. Uh, we keep a stack of Bibles each and every week at the entrances. They're there for you. Because one of the things that we don't do at this church is we don't try to say, here, here are the couple verses that we want you to know about, but, but trust us on the rest. No, we want to be a full disclosure church. Here, here is what the scriptures say. Fact check us on this. Put this in context know this scripture because it's not about us trying to tell you what you should think about these. It is us trying together to figure out what God's saying and how we apply it. That's, that's who we are. So we'd love to equip you with the scriptures if you don't have one. So please take that. But a little bit more about the book of Joshua. Um, the Bible itself is a collection of ancient documents. And one of them is this book that we call the book of Joshua, which could be dated beyond 3,000 years old. And so this is the one we're, we're looking at here. And it contains some of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. And we're going to look at some of them right now. So Joshua chapter 6 is where we're going to start. This is a, um, a condensed version of verses 16 through 21, but we want to tell you where they are so you can look these up and, and see if we're messing with them or this is what it actually says. Joshua chapter 6, um, here's some of the content from 16 through 21. And again, this is provocative stuff here, much more provocative than this shirt that I'm wearing. As soon, or at least it should be. Um, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, this is describing a battle called the Battle of Jericho, a real battle that happened. As soon as people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And look what the people of God did. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And this isn't the only place in Joshua where you find a passage like this. Let's turn to Joshua 10, 28. Joshua 10, 28. Take a look at this. This is another battle, and they're talking about another town. As for this other town, Joshua captured it on that day, and he struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction, what does the word say? Every person in it. He left nothing remaining. And he did to this king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Here's one more, just a couple verses later. This kind of provides a summary of this chapter in God's history. So Joshua struck the whole land. This is in verse 40. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed. And see if this isn't disturbing. Just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. It's passages like that that lead some folks to form conclusions like this. For those of you who are here during our series on creation evolution, again, we don't duck the hard stuff. Um, we... we we took a look at a lot of the writings of a guy named Richard Dawkins. He says this about the God of the Bible. This is what Richard Dawkins calls the God of the Bible. He calls him a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, a couple other really big words, and capriciously malevolent, malevolent bully. Now, I could have pretended that I knew what those words were and worked on my pronunciation. I, I, I think his point is this, though. His point is that none of these are flattering words. 
you know, he's not trying to paint God in a positive light here. Well, as Christians, why don't we agree with Dawkins? Why don't we look at, at what we just read and said, this is not compatible with the Prince of Peace? Or why don't we look at this and go, maybe there's two different gods or something. How, how can we reconcile um, what we just read with what we see in other parts of the Bible? Well, what I want to do today with the limited time we have is answer all your questions. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> um, with the remaining time I do have today, I want to do three things. One, I want to point you to some helpful resources because there's a lot of brilliant minds who've done a lot of deep thinking on these issues. Two, the other thing I want to do is I want to offer an important, a vitally important reminder anytime you wrestle with any literature anywhere. And then three, what I want to do is close with a prayer that I believe could literally change the trajectory of Shoreview in this surrounding area. So that's what I'd like to do today. Let's start just briefly with the helpful resources piece of it. Um, And I want to start with, in your notes, uh, you'll notice that I recommend a couple resources here at the bottom of... um, at the bottom of your sheet. Uh, two of them were just kind of just helpful, I found, in different ways. One of them was written by a guy who was a devout Muslim who converted to Christianity. I always want to know why. So that's a helpful resource. Another one is written by a guy who's been working with Muslims for 50 years and some of the things that he's learned. And then there's two study resources that I encourage you to consider. Um, I would just encourage every, we recommend these all the time. I'd encourage every household to get an ESV study Bible and an IVP background commentary, not because these have all the answers, because they're two just very good resources that can help you dive into these things. So I'd encourage you to to consider those resources, as well as context for them. Thanks for the reminder. Um, To get into a Bible study, get into these places where you can wrestle with some of these questions in greater detail. All right, so those are some resources. I also, just for, for what it's worth, I put a couple other books up on this table here just to demonstrate that you're not going to come across a question that hasn't been raised. You're not. There's a lot of brilliant people who've done a lot of hard work and, and to wrestle with some of the questions that you are. And there are some great resources to go to to try to help look at different ways to look at some of the things that, um, that, that are raised as we get into the scriptures. All right, so that's a little bit about resources. I want to spend a little bit more time on this important reminder piece now. So let's go there. I want to give this important reminder that probably every person in this room already knows. That's why I call it a reminder. You already know this. But if we're going to go into the scripture and we're going to treat it with integrity, you have to treat it the way you treat all literature, right? And that is to put what you read in context. Can I get an amen? You, anytime you go to any literature, it's vitally important that you put it into context. And one of the things that people are so guilty of, they take a piece of literature, they pull it out, and then they use it to support what they already believe. That, if you do that with a book like the Bible, you can, a book that big, you can make it say just about anything that you want it to say. Same thing with the Quran. Don't do that. I see a lot of Christians doing this. They're cherry-picking this verse, this verse, this verse, to support what they already believe, rather than what does it actually say. Let's be fair to any text that we dig into. Now, I will say this about the Bible. It's harder to do this with the Bible than possibly any other book because there's no book like the Bible. This book was written 
different authors, different continents, different time periods, different settings. You've got, more, you've got thousands of years of history that you're, you're trying to put context to. So you have to make these big jumps. What was the situation they were in when they were writing this? That's huge. You also have three languages, primarily two, but there's three. And all of these languages have changed. They're not what they once were. Back in the day, so you have this huge language barrier as you're trying to put these verses in context. And then the Bible has got multiple literary genres. And sometimes the Bible's using poetry. And sometimes it's using psalm. And there's some overlap, but there's also some differences. Sometimes it's speaking in parables. Sometimes it's prophecy. There are letters. There are commands. There's apocalyptic revelations. And if you try to treat poetry like narrative, you're in trouble. And if you try to treat narrative, historical narrative, like straight up history, there's also some challenges. All this to say, if you're going to treat any text with integrity, you've got to look at context. And we could spend, there's entire courses on context, right? I'm just going to, with the time we have, I'm going to give you three questions to consider as you wrestle with these texts that we looked at today. Three questions. There's a place to write this in your notes. And let me start with a... uh, a statement, and then we'll unpack it with these three questions. Here's my statement. The conquest of Canaan, Canaan is this area that they're going into, the the promised land. The conquest of Canaan is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. This is so important to remember. The passages I opened with, they are descriptive, not prescriptive. A descriptive passage describes what happened. Prescriptive is, here's what you should do. And it's so important to to break those two down and to treat them differently. The author of Joshua, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was describing the battles that took place in that particular period of time, in that particular place. The author is not prescribing, saying all future conflict with all future adversaries, here's what you should do. There may be some principles we can pull, but one of the tricky things about descriptive versus prescriptive, sometimes there's things in the Bible that are there as examples of what not to do. Amen. And people go, look at how this person treated this person in the Bible. Exactly. Don't do that either. You know? And so it's tricky. So we're looking at descriptive text. So to to keep that in mind. All right. If you're a reader, going to approach these descriptive texts with integrity. Here's just three of dozens of questions that you could ask. Number one, how is harem? (laughs) This is why I don't speak Hebrew, which is Hebrew for utterly destroy. How is it different than genocide or ethnic cleansing? Pause. One of the places where it's hardest for me not just to go, you're an idiot. I try never to say that. That's never helpful in conversations, just FYI. (laughs) Is when people try to say, What is in the Bible? That's ethnic cleansing. Do you even know what ethnic cleansing is? Genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. Why do I say that? Because what what we find in the Bible is he's not going in ethnic cleansing. He's saying if you do these same things and you call yourself my people, you're in trouble too. You're in trouble too. This is about honoring God. This is not ethnic cleansing. It's not genocide. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Here we go. Moses uses the language of leaving alive nothing that breathes to utterly destroy. That same term is used when we get to Jeremiah 25. The word harem is used of the people of 
Judah, where God says he's going to utterly destroy them. This isn't about, here's my favorites, as we think of it like that. This is something different. Well, we're going to press deeper into that theme next week. For those of you who like to read ahead, I'd like to encourage you to look at Joshua chapter 7. And there's this incident of a Hebrew guy who he, he makes some choices and feels the consequences of those. All this to say, God is not a mascot. Can I get an amen on that? God is not a mascot that we can just hold up to engage in an unholy war. One of the reasons I'm wearing this jersey today is because you can't just say God is on your side the way the world says God is on your side. He's not your mascot. It's, it's not about, about us being a favorite. It is about us trying to humbly, anyone, trying to humbly go to God and say, God, what does it mean to be a follower of you? How do I serve you? How do I go about your purposes? How do I, how do I, how do I fight for your side in a God-honoring way? Does that make sense? God is not a mascot. If the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us that Yahweh is not a God who we can invoke to promote the muscle to further, or to provide. Let me say this again. Let me start over. If the, the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us that Yahweh is not a God that we can invoke to provide the muscle to further our own agendas. That's what I meant to say. And this is just one of the hard questions. The one I just gave you there, this is one of the hard questions we need to wrestle with if we want to approach these hard texts with integrity. Okay, here's another question. You want to, you want to get the context? Here's another question. How did the Old Testament rules of engagement and conquest differ from those of the surrounding nations? This is important too. Because one of the things that we start to see as you dig into the, the scriptures is what God commanded the people to do when they went into Canaan is not identical to what he commanded them to do in other situations. In fact, one of the things you start to see emerge are, are unprecedented, unprecedented um, instructions and protections for women and children and refugees and immigrants as God was taking um, his people and saying, here are the rules of engagement, unprecedented protections. In other words, for the Christian, there are different situations that may require different responses. And that's one of the reasons why God's people have been wrestling with this idea of just war. What does that look like? Because we see in Canaan, one set of rules of engagement. We see also then in other situations, God provided these extra protections that weren't anywhere else among other nations. And then you have these prescriptive teachings. How do you put all this together? One of the resources we gave you, that ESV study Bible, on pages 2,554 and 2,555, there's a great little article on, on just war where you can see some Christians trying to wrestle with, okay, what, what are the principles we can pull from these descriptive passages? What are some of the prescriptive things that God says? How do we put that together so that if we engage in conflict, we can do so in a God-honoring way. Now, before we pivot towards Christ, which is what the Bible almost always does, I want to give you one more example of one more question that a person needs to ask if they're going to approach the hard passages of Joshua with integrity. Here it is. What do we know about the people who are occupying God's land on the western side of the Jordan? In other words, what do we know about the people they considered their enemy? This is an important question. And it also raises other important questions. 
And at Emmanuel, we're purposeful in most of the things we do. And the language I chose here is very intentional, especially that phrase, God's land. And I'm going to say something right now that is so countercultural, so countercultural. None of this land is ours. That land wasn't the Canaanites' land, but it wasn't the Hebrews' land. Whose land was it? It was God's land. Your stuff isn't your stuff, if the Bible is true, and I believe it is. Your money's not your money. Your time's not your time. Last week, we sang that great song. It's your breath in our lungs. So what do we do? We pour out our praise. Again, the scriptures teach that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, 1. And that concept is about as foreign to modern ears as the Vince Lombardi trophy is to our beloved purple. And all the Packer fans said, Amen. God wasn't taking the land from the Canaanites. And again, I know that this is so not PC. The land wasn't theirs to begin with any more than it was the Hebrew people. It wasn't their land. It was God's land. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. And God had very specific plans and purposes for the people he was going to give that land to and for what he was going to accomplish in that land. And we can see now with history some of what that was about because that little piece of land became the crossroads of the world from which the message of the cross was to go forth. God had plans and purposes for his land and for these people. And if you aren't aware of the practices of the people who were occupying that land, I would encourage you to look into that. That is an important part of this context. Very important part of this context. And if you are going to go look into that and you're a minor, get your parents' permission first. Because it is R-rated stuff. It is R-rated stuff. The Canaanite culture, if you dig into this, you're going to find it was violent, it was immoral, and it was evil. And these are people who degraded women, to put it mildly, and even sacrificed their own children to false gods. Let's go to the next slide. Here's what one person says about it. This has nothing to do with ethnic cleansing or genocide, but with the fact that child-sacrificing, violent warriors, and unjust oppressors were squatters on God's land. And again, our modern mind goes to, uh, yeah, but couldn't you have worked something out? Let me just talk straight up to parents. How many parents do we have here? Let me just ask you this. Parents, if you owned a home, It was your home. And you left it unoccupied for a period of time. And while you left that land unoccupied, other people moved in. And those people were vicious. And those people were evil. And those people were immoral. And those people would even sacrifice their own kids to false gods. Would you send your kids into that home that you owned and just said, hey, be careful? Or would you call the authorities? How many of you would call the authorities? I'd never thought of this before. Who is the authority? Who does God call? There's a logic here. There's a reason here that follows. But then there's people like me who go, okay, but you're God. 
So even if that's logical, even if that makes sense, why did it have to be that way? If you could create any possible creation, why create a world in which this is how it played out? And I'll talk about my own question in just a minute. Joshua says this. Joshua says this to Israel's leaders about the actual circumstance. We'll talk later about, well, what about other situations? But right now, with this situation where this is what's going on, here's what Joshua says. And Joshua says, this is Joshua 23, uh, verses 12 through 13. This comes towards the end of Joshua. At this point in the history, they had done what God asked them to do. God had given them victory over these enemies. And Joshua says this, as he's about to transition out of leadership. He says, if you turn back, and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. And you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until, read this with me, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua says, in this time, in this place, in this situation, do we know why God did it all this way? No. But in this time of situation, if you don't cast these people out, here's what's going to happen. And did this come to pass? It did. There would never be peace in that land if the Canaanites weren't removed. All right, these three questions that are in your notes that I just briefly walk you through. This is just three of dozens of questions that you could ask if you want to try to get at the context. What was going on here in that situation? As important as these questions are, what I want to do now is I want to share one of the most important talk points, and I'm not saying this lightly. I want to share right now one of the most important talk points I've ever shared from the front since in the history of our church. And there's a place to write this in your notes. We've been talking about descriptive texts. Let me tell you about this. Our prescriptive pivot as Christians is to the spirit of Christ. Can I get an Amen. All right, and let me, let me start when I'm, because I want to address this here. Let me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to pivot the way politicians pivot. A politician, what they do, they get a hard question, not all of them, but a lot of them. What they do, they get a hard question, what do they do? They pivot to something that makes them look good, right? That is not what I'm talking about at all. What I'm talking about here is doing what the scriptures themselves do. They pivot to Christ. They pivot to Christ. And they're not hiding anything. They aren't saying, let's deflect from the hard stuff. Let's look at Christ. They're, they're doing the opposite. They are saying, this hard stuff demonstrates why Christ is good news. Why the gospel is good news. What we just see here in the worst that the world has to offer, what we're seeing here is our need for a savior. That's what the scriptures do. That's what we're called upon to do. Pivot to Christ. Pivot to Christ. Pivot to Christ. Every one of us longs to live in a promised land where there's peace. Even Hitler wanted that, but who did he want to be in charge of everything? Right? That was his peace. We want peace. We want to live in a land of peace. One of the things that peace requires is for all who oppose peace to be cast out. And here's what we see in the scriptures. If you read the whole thing in context, you find out we're the Canaanites. We're the ones who don't deserve to be in that land. 
We start to see, if you read this chapter 7 that I've been telling you to read, it, we are the Achans. We're the ones who take things that we're told not to touch. We start to read, as we look at the scriptures, that we're the ones, and here's to my question that I gave earlier, we are the ones, I am the one who is so filled with pride that I have the audacity as a created being to turn to my creator and say, why didn't you do it a different way? Do you realize how much audacity that takes? And what a mindset that I have where I'm asking those questions. My mindset is just, it's, it's not what it should be. The scripture says, he's the potter, we're the clay. Now, watch this. Joshua and Jesus, we talked about this last week, they share the same Hebrew name, Yeshua. Yeshua's actions in the book of Joshua foreshadow the actions of Yeshua in the book of Revelation. What will Jesus do to the adversaries of God when he returns? He's going to cast them out. (laughs) And I was thinking about this when we were singing this song. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. If you have your Bibles now, let's look at Romans. Romans 8. Now we can smile, huh? Romans 8. Oh, here's why the Bible is good news. It's good news. Romans 8, verse 1. Again, we pivot to Christ not to get out of the hard stuff, but precisely because the hard stuff, it reveals who we are, who God is, and why we need a Savior. The hard stuff reveals that sin and holiness cannot coexist. The hard stuff reveals there is one God who is Lord over all. The hard stuff reveals there's not one among us who deserves to enter and stay that promised land based on our own merit. And here's what all that hard stuff points to. Here's the prescriptive life that the Scripture points all of us to. Now, the whole chapter, Romans 8, is worth reading and studying. We only have time to just briefly, we only have time to just briefly look at parts of it. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, look at this. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. If you're in Christ, in in him may it then be found. If we're in Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is no equivalent of this in any of the other major world religions. There is no equivalent of this. There might be some little cult that someone made up later along the way that copied this. There is no equivalent of Jesus Christ in any of the other major world religions. That's why we pivot here. Because this is where our scriptures pivot us to. Inside your notes, um, we have a yellow insert. There's a great quote that I put in there, an extended quote by Tim Keller that speaks to this, to Christ, to the uniqueness of Christ, to the importance of Christ. I want to encourage you to read that. Hopefully next week we'll have time to come back and look at that one in some more detail. He words it so brilliantly. One of the lines that he puts in there, he says, knowing what Jesus did on our behalf is only half the answer, but he says it's the half that we need. Isn't that beautiful? 
It's the half that we need because our minds are going to go to all these questions and things we don't understand. This is what we can lock on to. If we can understand and believe this, it frames everything else. There's a place to write this in your notes. Christ himself is our peace. Can I get an amen? Christ himself is our peace. And the good news goes beyond what Jesus did. Look at what he's extended for us as we continue on. Romans 8, a, a, a summary of 6 through 9 says this, to set our minds on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the spirit is peace. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. I put that up there because we can have the spirit of Christ. This passage is really mind-blowing because it talks about the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. It weaves it all together almost as if there's one God in three persons, Right? Almost as if God's desire is for you to be a temple of that. I shouldn't say that, of him. A temple of him. Christ in us, working in us, changing our minds, transforming our hearts, and filling us with hope. Verse 18, Paul writes this. He's filled with the Spirit. He writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Creation waits in eager expectation for this hope. We, uh, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All that to say, if the Holy Spirit is in us, it gives us hope. And that hope can sustain us when the world around us looks crazy and we don't understand and we think there is no hope. Picking up with verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit can help us in our weakness because we don't know what we ought to pray for. Who's been there before? We don't even know what to pray for. But look at this, the Spirit himself does what? Intercedes. How many of you ever asked someone to pray for you before? How would you like to have the Holy Spirit interceding on your behalf? Come on, that's amazing. Can you see why this is good news? What other God does that? Has the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. We will declare over despair, you're the hope. And I love this, Romans 8.31. Starts this, oh no, let's, before we go to that one, Romans 8.28, almost forgot that. Don't forget that one. And we know that God works all things for good in those who love us and are called according to his purpose. Can you Imagine that, to be able to live with life, to go, this horrible thing that just happened, this terrible mistake I just made, God can even work this for good. This is good news. And now, 31, the summary begins. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, what does it say? Who can be against us? And this is so much richer when you link the New Testament and the Old. Because in the Old Testament, when God's people were being pursued by the Egyptians, the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh's army. If God is for us, who can be against us? And in the case of Joshua, when God was with Joshua, walls came tumbling down, the sun stood still, hailstones functioned as artillery. If God is for us, who can be against us? And now with the understanding of Christ, who can be against us? What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. Wow. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. I encourage you to write that down in your notes. Last talk point, the Spirit of Christ compels us to be more than conquerors. More than conquerors. We were, I had a lunch meeting at Olive Garden uh, this week, and we're having this meeting, and the, the server comes up, and he says, where are you guys from? What church are you from? And we told him, and he says, I just got to share this with you. He says, I was a PK. I was a pastor's kid. And it wasn't until just now, he's in his 20s, until just now that I understand the gospel. He says it changes everything. 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 The spirit of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it compels us to be more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Moses was described as a servant of the Lord. Joshua was described as a servant of the Lord. This was not about God is my mascot and he's going to give me what I want. This is not about trying to gain power or control. These guys were all about, God, what do you want? What is your will? How do we serve you? What does it look like? Now, our battlefield may look very different than theirs did. But as was the case with Moses and Joshua, if we keep a listening ear pointed towards heaven, as we respond to the whispers of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, like Moses, like Joshua, we're going to discover that we serve a God who goes before us. He went before them. Joshua 24, last chapter of of Joshua 24, 12 through 13. God says, I sent the hornet before you which drove them out, these people before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. That was true in their holy war. In their holy war, God went before them. Does he go before us today? Yes. And I'll give you one more time some teasers of what's to come in this series here. We're going to look and we're going to see, hopefully starting next week with the Quran, how God has embedded things in the Quran that can be jumping off points for us, for respectful dialogue. God has, has established Jesus as the Messiah in Islam. There's a jumping off point there for discussions. God gone before us. And hopefully next week I can share my favorite of the dream stories. God is sending dreams to a number of Muslims who are seeking God. And I want to share one of those stories. He's gone before us. So it's not about us feeling guilty and all this kind of stuff or inadequate because we are. It's about us going, God, what would you have me to do? Because all you can be is faithful. That's all you can do is to be faithful to what God says what he says. God's desire is for us to be more than conquerors. This isn't about attempting to win arguments through verbal attacks. This isn't about trying to spread our faith through violence. This is about pointing people to our Savior and theirs, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a world that is trending towards polarization, fear, opposition, here's the prayer that I'd ask us to pray. This is the third of the three things that I said we did we were going to try to do today. If you want to pull out your note sheet, we'll also put them up on the screen. 
Here's a prayer that was attributed to St. Francis, and then they added one line at the bottom. We live in a world where, where there's just so much hating going on, right? And not even attempting to listen or attempting to understand. What if we prayed this prayer of availability, of just trying to understand? And what if soldiers prayed this prayer? Because the ultimate goal is not to defeat ISIS. The ultimate goal is to establish peace. Those are two related but different things. What if everyone prayed this prayer? So as we close today, would you pray this prayer with me? Let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. I can't, you can, please do. Thank you. Let me pray for you.